You are listening to the Raptor Report, the official podcast of Raptor Maps, the leading provider of life cycle management software for the solar industry. This is Stephen Gloss, the lead Raptor Reporter, joined by my co-host, Don Miska. We are here to highlight the latest trends and developments within the solar industry. Joining us today is Chris Stearns. Chris has been working in the solar industry since 2006 with experience in manufacturing, distribution, and end-of-life recycling. He currently works as the head of downstream development for PV Evolution Labs, which is the leading reliability and performance testing lab for downstream solar project developers. With their eyes set on lifting up the greater solar industry, their efforts unleash valuable data related to the performance and reliability of PV module technology. Thanks for taking part in this feature Raptor Report. Chris, how are you doing today? Hey, thanks for having me, Stephen. I'm doing very well, and I'm excited to, uh, to have this conversation with you guys. No, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. And one of the things we like to do before we really dig into the details of your background and what you're involved in, I just love to get to learn a little more about you and really how you got started on your adventure into solar. So could would you be willing to expound? Sure. Yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting question. So I actually got into the solar industry in manufacturing back in 2006. I helped found uh, Ecofasten Solar, which was doing roof mounting hardware. And I have since taken on a number of jobs because I, I can't seem to find the door to the solar industry. Uh, but I've bounced around and uh, ended up speaking with the CEO of P- PVEL or, or PV Evolution Labs and, and found that we had you know a lot to talk about and it, it quickly evolved from a job interview into just sort of a, a couple of guys geeking out about solar technology. So glad to have landed here that I'm working with a bunch of very, very bright people who are just looking to essentially further the technology. It's all in the name, uh, PV Evolution Labs. We want to see PV module tech evolve and, and produce more power, more reliably for, for end users. Hey, Chris, thanks. Thanks again for joining us. Um, appreciate that background. I had no idea you were at EcoFast. And uh, once upon a time, I was a, a residential small commercial uh, PV system designer, and I used to spec uh, those those mounting systems frequently. So I didn't yeah. realize that at all. Yeah, small world. It's uh, it's one of those industries where, yeah, it's uh, the names uh, stay the same and the, the positions change. That's right. <laughs> um, so I'm curious just to start things off. I know you guys are involved in module testing, um, laboratory testing, performance testing around around the globe. Um, And kind of one of the hot button topics lately has been uh, module supply and supply chain issues. Um, I'm curious, you know, what you guys are seeing uh, in the markets, both both here in the U.S. and and around the world and what we should expect in the next uh, one to two years as it uh, pertains to to module supply? Sure. No, I mean, it is the question. And I think that I should probably preface this with the fact that I'm speaking, you know, from my understanding of the situation and not necessarily speaking for PVEL, um, because there's a lot of people who have a lot of opinions about what's happening right now, even within our company. Um, But I think, you know, the the clear issue is this AD, CBD, uh, you know, the the back and forth on this case, um, it's pushing us into a situation where there's going to start being manufacturers that frankly, are are names that we do not recognize. And where PVEL fits into this equation is by providing this objective third-party laboratory testing, essentially pushing modules beyond the IEC standards that they're required to pass to be able to be sold into the U.S. market. 
we're we're basically leveling the playing field and making it so that you know the known manufacturers that are on BNEF's tier one list and have been for some time can can share space with manufacturers who you may never have heard of, but who are producing good quality products that that do not fall under you know these modules that are going to experience tariffs in the next eighteen to twenty four months. So I think we're going to start to see a shift towards brand names that you may not have seen before, but which you may need to purchase to to finish developing the projects that you've got in your pipeline. Yeah, I think uh, fr- from, you know, what I'm gathering around the market and and the, the contacts and uh, conversations that I have, we're seeing not only existing some of the bigger players um, significantly expanding manufacturing, we're also seeing, as you mentioned, some some new entrants or some new names popping up um, where I just just curious where um like what countries or locations are kind of on the horizon for for manufacturing maybe that we weren't getting modules from before or or maybe already were sure no and it's it is an interesting and developing answer um i i think that the the front runner in terms of you know falling outside of that southeast asia sphere that's been in question is india i think that you know so many modules and module manufacturers are are coming up out of India that that really are producing quality products that again th- those names may not be familiar but we're we're seeing a shift towards production there and um, we also see modules coming out of places like Turkey uh, and, and other markets that we historically have not thought of as major module manufacturing competitors um, we're we're going to start to see a shift towards this this global manufacturing scheme. And then obviously, as you already mentioned, I think we're going to start to see manufacturing plants, at least we were all promised this at RE Plus a a few months ago, Uh, we're going to see a lot of manufacturing plants spring up here in the United States. And regardless of where they're coming from, new manufacturing facilities need to prove themselves. And and that's, you know, a part of what we're offering to the market. It's certainly great to hear about, about, sorry, Stephen, I, I, uh, I, 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 just, he he mentioned U.S. manufacturing, and I got to ask. Uh, I, I know in the past with with some of the tariffs and and, and uh, the the regulations around around modules, um, it's been you know some folks have done assembly in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and others have done full on manufacturing, and there's there's kind of a a storied history there in the U.S. with factories popping up and and then disappearing overnight. Um, I'm curious which manufacturers uh, we, we should be hopeful for uh, U.S.-based manufacturing. You know, it, it's a good question. Um, I, I feel like everyone who, who's ever manufactured a solar module more or less alluded to the fact that they would be here. So I, I think that I'm going to kind of punt that answer, Don, and kind of see how it shakes out. Um, just because, you know, I, at least from speaking with my colleagues, Everyone has a, a two gigawatt facility that's going to be, you know, right around the corner. Who actually follows through and does that somewhat remains to be seen. So um, sorry for the non-answer. But yeah, I, I don't know if if I want to pin myself down with an answer that I listen to a year from now and regret because it's so wrong. Yeah, that, that's excellent. One of the things that you, you said there kind of caught me off guard is that, you know, you're focused on or concerned about facilities here in the United States being able to prove themselves as reliable and sustainable operations to develop PV assets here in, in within the states what what does that exactly look like where you, you see the United States as being like a first world country as as being pretty technologically advanced what what will it take for a US facility to prove itself as a solar manufacturer 
It's a great question, Stephen, and I probably should have given more context to that that bombshell of a statement that it could be misinterpreted. So what I, what I mean to say is that any solar manufacturing facility, as it comes online, th these facilities are producing with such high degrees of you know quality that to get those systems tuned in and get everything functioning the way it needs to be working, th there's always some some you know, lead up time to getting the facility producing modules of the quality and of the wattage bins that they're expecting to produce. And so one of the things that, you know, what we're doing as a third party laboratory is taking modules from their initial production runs and running them through our product qualification program to make sure that those modules that are that are the first off the line are meeting the quality standards or exceeding the quality standards that we expect from those manufacturers. So it's not to say that you know, the, these facilities are not technologically advanced. They're extremely technologically advanced, but they do have to be fine-tuned to make sure that the output is what it should be. Yeah, thanks for that clarification. <laughs> Appreciate that. For sure. Hey, you mentioned you mentioned in that statement your uh, PVLs, or I guess you didn't mint it as PVLs, but you said uh, module quality program. Sure. Um, yeah, what, what does that entail? What type of testing, um, what type of... Uh, standards, uh, maybe talk a bit about uh, what goes into that. Sure. So, and thank you. Yeah, it's it's basically, it's it's the core business of PVEL. So when, when PVEL was started about a decade ago, Jenya, the, the CEO, knew that there needed to be a a way to look at module quality in, in a, an objective way. So not to say, oh, this one's a tier one module, go ahead, sign that contract. It's to say, you know, what standards, what quality levels, what reliability levels are we seeing from these modules? So the product qualification program or PQP is a, a series of tests that we have developed over the past decade to to basically compare these modules to one another in an apples to apples format. And, and we do that in the form of our annual scorecard where we publish the results of our testing. So it, it's a way for module manufacturers to basically submit their latest and greatest products to this rigorous testing program to show how they compare to other module manufacturers output in, in an objective setting. Yeah, Chris, one of the visions we have for this podcast is, you know, obviously there's going to be a lot of listeners who have a lot of background in solar, know a lot about solar panels in general, but we're, we're also hoping to reach uh, a, a new audience that perhaps has little to maybe even no knowledge about solar. They see a solar panel and perhaps the assumption is, you know, every solar panel is kind of the same. It's, you see one up on a rooftop, it's probably the same as the one you see out in the middle of West Texas. So what really differentiates the quality of solar panels and how has that sort of developed over like the past 10 to 15 years? Sure. No, and it's, it's a great question. And really what it comes down to is the bill of materials, the, the, the BOM or BOM for short. Um, and that refers to the, the recipe, the series of components that make up the module varies from manufacturer to manufacturer and even from model to model. And sometimes even within the same model, there are multiple BOMs that can be used in producing a specific module. Different combinations of materials perform differently and react differently to the testing procedures that we put them through. So basically comparing bombs to one another is a lot of what we end up doing. And more often than not, our end users can take that data, look at it and say, I want this manufacturer, this model, and this specific bill of materials, because that's the one that performed the best under PVEL's testing. And so th that's essentially what we're comparing here is it's not just the manufacturers, but the specific bills of material that are being used to make these different modules. 
Yeah, I appreciate that. It's a very straightforward and, and clear answer. Sure. No, I mean, it's it's fascinating. There's a lot of nuance here, um, but at the end of the day, what we do is reasonably straightforward. It's just obviously things get complicated when you get into the details. Yeah, you mentioned uh, bill of materials, and uh, this wasn't really something I had intended to to ask you or talk about, but um, you know, with our with our core business, you know, scanning um, and and digitizing solar assets, uh, we occasionally see systems with with multiple flavors of uh, of panels, and and I'm assuming with the supply chain constraints that we talked about earlier, have you seen maybe a little bit more of that where? Um, a customer or a client needs to have various uh, wattages or even different manufacturers tested for for a system to uh, to mint the modules. Sure, no, we, we've absolutely seen that. Um, it, it varies. Obviously, there's a, there's a number of different scenarios where this could come into play, but we've seen you know the same manufacturer, same module part number with different bills of materials represented on the same site. Um, and we've also seen, although it's less common, blends of manufacturers. Um, so it really any scenario you can imagine, obviously with the constraints on supply for a lot of these projects that are in the pipeline or were in the pipeline a year ago, for them to actually finish those projects, some compromises needed to be made. However, one way to mitigate the risk is to make sure that the modules, if you're having to pivot to a different vendor than the one you had initially specified, one way to make sure that you are not you know, biting off more than you can chew or taking a risk is to make sure that those models passed or, or are performing acceptably through third party testing. And again, that, that's where we come in is to offer that third party testing to qualify the reliability of, of a given module and a given bill of materials. Yeah, could you could you talk a bit about the difference between uh, factory testing and third party testing um, and and which which tests are overlaps and which you guys do that are completely unique that the factory never does. Sure. Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, it, it's important to understand here that we by no means are denigrating factory testing. The, the, the factories that are producing these modules are incredibly rigorous about their quality acceptance and quality control. Really, I think where third party testing plays a role is that in many cases, or in fact, in all cases, module manufacturers are testing to a specific set of standards. We tend to go above and beyond that set of standards to allow end users to sort through what they have available to them and make a decision based on the results of our reliability testing. So to get back to, to the, you know, the factory versus, say, for example, batch testing in a laboratory or field testing, they all fit sort of into different boxes. Um, so, so to kind of touch on it just very briefly, what we tend to see is factory testing occurs. We'll often have a third party witness. The, the factory production makes sure that they're following quality control standards, that they're, they're using the proper bill of materials that's been contracted. But then once those modules leave the factory, it, it's up to the customer to make sure that they're good quality before they're installed. And so that, that's where, for example, like field testing would come into play. In between there, the, the factory and the field, Many times the uh, the developer will send them to us, send a batch of modules to us for batch testing. And essentially what that is, is just making sure that the quality levels are what has been contracted for. So I don't know if I, if I dance around the question, but basically they all have a valid role in, in the module procurement process. No, I appreciate that, that kind of storyline. And um, I, I see a bunch of different flavors or, or different... Um, points of testing, I guess. I see some clients that want them, as you mentioned, like when they receive them, 
Um, and then others uh, are fine with the factory testing or some people bring folks like you to actually go to the factory. And so I know there's quite a few different ways um, it can work out. So no, I appreciate you walking through that. For sure. Um, so, so with that, what, uh, you know, I, I'm assuming there's some tried and true testing that that's been going on for, you know, 20 years. And I'm assuming there's also emerging, emerging technologies and techniques in the space. So maybe tell me a bit about what's, uh, what's new or what's to come in, in, in the world of module testing and performance. Sure. No, I, I think, yeah, obviously there, there are some established standard tests um, that, that modules must pass. I think that what we're starting to see is as modules physically get larger and they're getting quite large, some of them in the utility space are, are getting to be eight feet long on the long side. Um, what we're starting to see is especially in places like the United States where extreme weather events are common or seemingly becoming more common, our, our modules are being tested for hail at a fairly lenient standard. Uh, the IEC standard is a 25 millimeter hailstone, which is a, a roughly an inch. And granted, that's large hail. No one wants to stand outside in that. But there are places in this country that see hailstones two and a half, three inches on a fairly regular basis. Uh, not common, obviously, but it's possible in many places in this country to see larger hail. So, you know, we are developing hail stress sequences, basically where we're creating factory hail, launching it at these modules, and then performing electroluminescence imaging and flash testing to see what sort of detrimental effects those hail impacts have on these modules and, and quantifying ones that perform well under those stresses. So I think nuanced tests like this are, are probably going to become more standard over time as more and more developers are looking at places where large hail is an issue. Uh, so that's just one example, um, but I think it's a good one to you know sort of lead the thought process of what's really facing these models in the field versus you know the, the laboratory standards that has got to be one of the uh probably one of the coolest and exciting just visual pictures i have in my mind of that lab just just a giant hail store <laughs> that's pretty cool <laughs> it, it's it's fascinating so uh we have a number of engineers that the guy who runs the program for the the hail cannon um is our, our lead engineer todd karen and he, he was showing me the, the cannon itself and it's basically it reminded me of my youth of uh, potato guns. It's a similar <laughs> assembly, um, but we we have a very rigorous process to replicate hailstones in a in a consistent way. Basically, making sure that the ice density is the same every time. There, there's a lot to it. Um, Todd is is very eager to to share all the effort that's been put into making sure that these tests are easily replicated, so that we're not favoring one module versus another module that it's that it's the same every time. So yeah, it's certainly a, a place that we've spent a lot of of time and money on R and D to make sure that we are providing accurate results to the industry. That's really cool. Believe it or not, we've actually uh, we scanned some solar farms that have been built like right on the edge of like softball and baseball fields. Sure. Yeah, they, uh, they serve as really great indicators of like uh, the distribution rate of foul balls and home runs, and you can <laughs> <laughs> you can literally see the damage. So perhaps you guys can also install a uh, like a, a baseball cannon <laughs> into your laboratory. That's funny. We've actually seen. Uh, I've worked on a couple of projects just at Pivel, uh where they were canopies near high schools where baseballs were the number one concern, uh, and it was a fairly frequent problem. So yeah, it's, it's something that. Uh, the things you don't anticipate when you're developing projects, but that come up in real life. Yeah. Yeah, Chris, I know, I, I feel like I read an article maybe a few years back that the original testing was utilizing um, 
I could have this totally wrong, by the way, but uh, it was utilizing like round ice for hail testing. Mm -hmm. And it's been found that the the irregular shape of the hail is it, it causes like significantly different like impact signatures and that a lot of the laboratories had to start forming like like weird shaped hail. I, I don't know if that's totally misguided, but is that something that you guys actually have to do is like form strange shapes versus round shapes for hail? No, it's it's an interesting conversation, Don. And frankly, there's a bit of a rabbit hole here because you're spot on. In the wild, hail does not form in perfect spheres. Uh, it forms in, and there, there's a word for the type of shape that I'll probably get wrong. I think it's an oblate. Um, but but in re regardless, they, they come out at these like gnarly, not spherical shapes that have different densities. And so we went back and forth on this a lot internally in terms of how to best represent the energy transfer when a hail strike occurs. And, and we settled on that we, we are producing spheres. We're producing them again at that very specific density that I alluded to in, in my earlier answer. Um, but basically what we're measuring is the amount of kinetic energy that's transferred from the hailstone to the module. And that's you know done by basically measuring the speed, the velocity of the hailstone as it exits the, the barrel of the cannon and making sure that it's at the proper velocity to measure that, you know, the, the standard that we're shooting to achieve. So there's actually a, a little blocker that if the, the hailstone's coming out too fast or too slow, we don't actually allow that impact to occur. It has to fall within a very specific set of parameters. So again, that we can easily replicate that amount of force transfer on, on every module that we test. So no, we're, we're not creating, you know, non-spherical hail balls because we, we figured that that would add a variable as opposed to removing one. But to your point, it, it, they, they never come out the way they come out in a laboratory when they're, then they're falling from the sky. Yeah. Now that's really interesting, Chris. Uh, we talk about hail and I, I'm curious, are there any other like really specific tests that you guys do that are perhaps noteworthy in, in just the, the way that you conduct them on these modules? Uh, it's an interesting question. I, I think one thing that's worth mentioning uh, about PVEL is we have a field exposure facility in Davis. It's actually one of the oldest grid tied sites in the United States. It's called PVUSA, um, where we're able to perform all sorts of unique tests in the field as opposed to in the laboratory. So we have a number of different trackers. We have fixed tilt racks. Um, we, we have all sorts of things that we can deploy modules on to allow us to replicate circumstances in the field. So I, I think that rather than you know focus in on a specific laboratory test, I think something to, to keep in the back of your mind as you think of PVEL is at the end of the day, we're comprised of a bunch of engineers who want to improve module quality over time by breaking modules in elaborate ways is essentially what we do. Um, so I think that, yes, under, understanding that if there's a test that you are contemplating, we can most likely find a way to do that. Um, and we have that flexibility. That's really cool. I love that, <laughs> that principle. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fun place in that way. And, you know, that, that's our job is to break modules in a professional way to show how they fail and, and to basically present that evidence to the manufacturers so that they can improve their processes and make uh, more resilient modules. A professional demo crew. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, Chris, we've we've seen um, kind of an increase. I'm going to shift gears slightly here. Well, it's still it's still in your world, but um We've we've seen clients starting to ask in the U.S. and I believe this is something that that is more common in other markets, European, Australian markets. But we we've started to see people um, looking at you know when they receive modules on site, 
Um, then, you know, taking samples and sending them off to the lab to kind of backstop the laboratory testing, uh, or I'm sorry, the OEM testing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's not something I had seen a lot in the U S before. Um, we would kind of just, you know, you get your flash test from the lab or from the OEM, you get your, your, your factory exemptions testing, and you kind of trust that and run with that. Um, now we're seeing, Hey, like, like, uh, EPCs and developers that are saying, okay, if we're going to backstop uh, this system with a performance guarantee, you know, I, I love that we have uh, OEM testing, but we also want to perform our own third-party testing. Is that, are you seeing more of that in the States than you have previously? Is that standardized in other markets? Maybe talk a bit about that. Sure. So I, I think the first place to touch on is that my understanding is that in like, for example, the European market, the module acceptance testing on site is actually becoming fairly common. Um, and, and if it's not built into all the contracts, it's starting to be. And the, the idea here is that regardless of the quality of the modules as they leave the factory, there's a variable in the form of transit. And modules can really be easily damaged in transit. And in many cases, they would pass a visual inspection where they might contain micro cracks that can reduce the performance of the modules over time. And so pivoting to the United States market, it is something that we are starting to see more and more often where module acceptance testing on site, where essentially we deploy a team with an electroluminescence camera that can look at modules at the cell level and identify if there are uh, issues or, or defects or damage from transit, we can flag that for the end user and they can basically dispute that shipment. And, and really the idea here is that rather than just install every module that lands on site, site, you know, without, I guess, looking into it further, this allows the manufacturer, the developer, I'm sorry, uh, to know that some modules may need to be monitored for performance over time and may need to have, you know, spares on site to replace some of those modules. And so the idea here is that, you know, the most expensive, thing on many of these sites is labor. And if you're just installing modules without knowing that there may be issues, you may end up having to take those modules down and spend labor twice or even three times. And so, yes, it's becoming much more common for module acceptance testing to happen on site. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, we kind of come in shortly after that, you know, if you're doing EL testing in the field, um, you know, batch testing uh, for module acceptance, you know, one of one of our uh, core offerings is is, uh, you know, PV commissioning IR scans. So we're both kind of uh, different procedures, but trying to to make sure that there's a, a perfect product handed off, you know, from the EPC and manufacturers to the uh, to the owners and operators. So, you know, if you if you incorporate both of those procedures, you can you can kind of step into day one operations with with a real strong peace of mind. Absolutely. And and I think that really that's what it comes down to is, you know, it's like anything else in life. You tend not to opt for the extra thing until you've been burned somewhere else. Um, And and I think that there's enough developers in this country that have had issues on the O&M side of things where they're trying to maintain plants that are not performing up to expectations. And they're, they're seeing all the things that they could have done better during the you know commissioning process essentially which is exactly where you would fit into this is you provide a service that could save them potentially millions of dollars over time and that's similar to what we're trying to do is to mitigate the risk uh, on behalf of these developers who are plunking down these huge amounts of money they want to make sure they see this return on investment and that's what all of our products are tailored to do 
you know, Chris, with these uh, acceptance testing and commissioning testing, um, you know, we, we, we like to remind uh, owners and operators um, of their warranty period, you know, with EPCs, it's one or two years. Um, and with some products, I mean, with, with modules, it's quite long, but with some other products, it can be um, shorter. So I, I like to remind customers that it's important to do these tests early, you know, prior to energization and and even in the first year to continue um, uh, testing as well while you've got these active warranties. Is that is that something that you guys try to focus on as well, like uh, targeting those periods? Oh, for sure. And I, and I think it's, we have to walk a fine line because, you know, obviously it's in my commercial best interest to have customers do just as much testing as they possibly can rationalize. And, and I think that there needs to be sort of a balance between what's helpful and, and what's really necessary. Um, and, and to that end, like our, our catchphrase around here is make data matter. Um, the idea being that the more data that you have about a specific project, the more likely you are to come out ahead if you have an incident on that site, whether it's underperformance due to a design issue or due to a, a serial manufacturing defect or, or due to a natural catastrophe, like a hailstorm or something similar, um, the, the more information you have, the better. Um, but obviously, and, and I, I only chuckle because in so many cases, there just isn't the budget uh, to contemplate a lot of this testing. And so really what we end up doing in many cases, working with the customer to try to identify the most critical points, for example, you know, doing module acceptance testing during the first few weeks of deliveries to the site to make sure that quality is at an acceptable level, um, rather than maybe continuing in through the full delivery period, depending on what the project's circumstances are. So I think that it's it's sort of a a unique conversation for every developer and every project, but more testing is usually better in terms of being able to support warranty or insurance claims down the road. Yeah, for me, Chris, it's kind of interesting. I look at this, let's say I'm, I'm somebody who has like no no clue what's going on in the solar space. And so I'm just a consumer. Let's say I re- like I'm purchasing something at a retail store, like, like a new iPhone or something. I, when I buy that phone, I'm just assuming based on brand reputation based on their advertisement based on what i hear from other people that when i get that phone it's going to work i'm not really expecting to have to take it to like a third party developer and be like hey test this for me and prove to me that it's actually going to work so do you think is that just something that the solar industry is going to have to deal with this for like the long term or is there will ever get to the point where where asset owners and, and investors will be able to sort of go about this the same way as you would any other purchase? You know, it's an interesting point, Stephen. And I think we we all would hope that that, that day is coming soon. And, and to be clear, you know, a, a lot of times I feel like we're sort of the bearers of bad news and, and indicating that, oh, there's all these problems. And, and frankly, we do see a fair amount of issues in the course of our testing. The reality is most of the, the models that we see are excellent. And most of the projects that we see are very well constructed and there's very few issues the reason we exist is because you as a developer don't want to be in that small percentage of developers that end up having a problem in the field. And so, again, it's most of the testing that we do. Everything is fine. Everybody's happy. The developer, the manufacturer are, you know, everybody is in lockstep with one another. It's the times that we come up with circumstances that are not ideal and how we help the manufacturer and end user work through those issues. That, that's why 
this type of testing exists. So will one day you be able to buy solar modules with no fear that there's going to be any issues? Sure. I, I hope that day comes soon. I don't think we're there. Yeah, I appreciate that. That candid answer. For sure. I mean, it's it's the reality of the circumstances is honestly, we don't want to find a lot of issues. But if there are issues, we want to make sure that our customers understand what they're dealing with and are able to use that data to to hopefully get to a resolution that, that's in everybody's best interest. Yeah, Chris, I think it's a bit of the 80-20 rule, right? Um, I know from my background in, in O&M, I don't really remember the names of the systems that that just worked silently and and never bothered me. And we kind of just did routine maintenance and all was well and we hit our performance numbers. But I can tell you a lot of the names of the ones that were <laughs> were always uh popping up with alarms and and always sending technicians and always having issues. So it almost seems, you know, when I look back, it almost feels like there's just problems everywhere. Um, but it's because you know, so many of the systems, as you mentioned, you know, the technology can just hum along and work and there's strong manufacturing and strong engineering behind all of it. Um, but it, they, they, those ones don't stick with you. Uh, you always seem to remember the problem child. I think that that's a great analogy, Don, is that, yes, the, the projects that work don't stick in your mind. It's the ones that you have the, you know, 30 month email threads on that that's tend to stand out. And I think, you know, as we're seeing this, this huge rush into the solar industry right now, given the, the financial circumstances, we as you know the industry veterans can pass on these hard-won pieces of knowledge to prevent other developers as they're coming up through the ranks from experiencing the same types of problems. And I think by standardizing you know, the, this, these lab tests and these field inspections and thermal imaging that we can hopefully, you know, to Stephen's earlier point, make solar more of a commodity as opposed to this wild west circumstances that we've been in for the last you know as long as i've been in it for 16 years it's been kind of a little crazy and <laughs> I think that the emphasis in the future is to make things more standardized and to make this easier and to limit the risk uh, and, and that's really what we're all working towards yeah chris uh, it's really exciting when you do look at it because we are see, starting to see a shift you're starting to see Solar, like you said, start to become that commodity. It's becoming equitable. It's becoming feasible, uh, even a more competitive option than like fossil fuels and and even natural gas. It's just, it's obviously it comes with its burdens when, especially with these with supply chains. So as you look at the way, because you are you've been in solar for a while since two thousand six. As you look at your journey from the start and to today. What are the what are your biggest takeaways that give you sort of confidence for the future? Sure. I, I mean, I think I'm a bit cynical in this regard that I, I kind of miss solar in 2006 because there was a lot more tie dye and a lot more ponytails. Um, and now <laughs> I feel like there's a lot more suits and a lot more money. Um, but I, I, I also see the upside to it in that this industry has evolved a lot beyond what I felt was, you know, a fledgling industry that was just sort of limping along on subsidies, I feel like that's changed. And, and, you know, given the amount of solar development at the utility scale that we're seeing in this country and around the world, solar is clearly here to stay. So if anything, I'm, I'm just proud of all of, you know, these people who founded this industry well before I was ever involved and, and who got it to the point that we could take it and run with it. Um, I, I think that, you know, I have a lot of hope for the future of solar in, 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 the world. And 
honestly, it's it's why I keep coming back to this industry is because it makes me feel like we're doing something um, as opposed to just sort of going along with the status quo. I think that, you know, the solar industry up to this point has been a lot of people who saw things from a different angle. And I think that those pioneers have really paved the way for for all of us. So yeah, I think that it's a rambling answer, but <laughs> I'm optimistic for, for where things are headed. Yeah, that's amazing. And I I think uh, there's a lot of energy brewing where people, I mean, are starting to see solar in a different way than perhaps the public perceived it 10 to 15 years ago. For sure. I, I definitely feel that as, you know, we just coming back from RE plus, which was the first major show that I had been to in, in a long time, um, given COVID and everything else that's gone on in the world. And the, the sense of growth and optimism and excitement that I felt at RE plus just in a few days um, really, you know, kind of, underlined everything that I've been trying to do here at PVL since I came on board is, you know, we're, we're headed in the right direction. And finally, I feel that solar is getting the respect that it truly deserves. So it's, it's an exciting time to be in the industry. Yes. Yeah, sp- speaking of exciting times and direction, I, I think I want to close this out with asking you one final question that I've, I, I think I've, um, I don't know intentionally, but I've been asking every guest. So uh, it, it's becoming a bit of a theme. Um with the signing of the IRA and extension of the ITC, uh, what does that mean for PVL? And you know, on a personal level, um, how, how does it make you feel? What do you think's coming? I, I think you know we we've always joked in this industry that this is the solar coaster, and it alludes to <laughs> the highs and lows. And you know, the conversations that I've had just over the past few months, the the, the tone has changed. And I, I feel like, if anything, the solar industry has turned into a bit of a rocket ship that's now got some real federal funding behind it and, and room for growth and research and development and a whole new era. So as far as what it means for PVEL, I think PVEL is going to continue to grow and, and hopefully remain you know, the go-to third-party laboratory for this industry. And, and what it means for me, I'm just excited that I get to talk about solar every day with people and and every day is unique and it presents a different set of issues and we try to find a different set of solutions. And as long as this is stimulating, I, I'm extremely excited to, to be in exactly the position I'm in today. Yeah, um, amazing, Chris. And it's just been an absolute pleasure to have you on this show. I, I come away from this conversation just being really invigorated and being stimulated with just the idea of, of what solar, where it started, where it's going and what we can look forward to to tomorrow so with that i wanted to ask do you have any closing comments um just that again i really appreciate you guys having me on the show and and letting me rattle on for however long it's been um (laughs) and and thank you for everything that you guys are doing to to further the industry i think that you know from my perspective a lot of people are are seeing solar in a new light in large part thanks to efforts of, of companies like yours and so thank you for for doing what you do and thank you for having me on and likewise, we appreciate everything you guys are doing at Peeville, and we just wish you the best success as you move forward. All right. Well, thanks very much, and uh, look forward to hearing this live. Awesome. Well, I want to thank our listeners to listening to this episode of the Raptor Report. We hope we've been able to provide you with some enlightening insights that sparked your curiosity and increased your awareness of developments within the solar industry. Look out for new episodes on your favorite podcasting platform where you'll get to have the chance to hear insights about solar from unique perspectives and leaders within the solar industry. Until then, this is Stephen Gloss and Don Nista. 
signing off.